the northern kingdom of Israel, whose capital was Samaria, was conquered by the Assyrians. God's drawing a comparison between Jerusalem and that northern capital. Through Jeremiah, a contemporary of Ezekiel, God warned Jerusalem what would happen should she continue on this trajectory. Jeremiah records, The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? Israel meaning Samaria, the northern tribes, the northern kingdom. She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Did you catch that word? Treacherous. Her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Then I saw that for all the causes for which the backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. So it came to pass through her casual idolatry, casual harlotry, that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. Then the Lord said to me, backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. The warning from God is clear. Israel was unfaithful to God, and God divorced Israel. And so God says to Judah, your sins are far worse because you ignored the lessons of Israel and committed adultery. So what did God do with unfaithful, adulterous Judah? He wrote her a certificate of divorce as well. God put up with a lot from Israel and Judah. The prophets fill their pages with condemnations of covetousness, cruelty, injustice, sexual immorality, and the list goes on. Generations of Israelites were completely ignorant about the word of God. So much so that when Josiah came to the throne of of Jerusalem, he was shocked. He was shocked when the law was discovered in the temple. And he was so shocked that it spurred him into a restoration movement. But in spite of all of these sins, it was one sin, idolatry, that provoked God to divorce His people. What's amazing about God is, though He dissolved His union with Israel and Judah, He also indicated His willingness to be reconciled. In the first hour I read from the second chapter of Hosea, verse 14, Listen to these words. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness, and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband. 
and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the name of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. God did not give up on Israel. Though they gave him legitimate grounds for spiritual divorce, he did not desire to remain divorced forever. And so God providentially pulled the political powers to enable a return to Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple, and a period of restoration. Israel Israel and Judah's idolatry was, in God's eyes, spiritual adultery. Because of their unfaithfulness, he divorced them, sending them into captivity. But he did not allow the relationship to remain severed. He laid the groundwork for restoration and reconciliation and brought it to pass. Or to put it another way, he remarried his first wife. Which brings me back to the remarkable internal consistency Jesus shows when teaching about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. In Matthew 19.9, Jesus says, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Unlike Hillel, who believed divorce could be for any reason, and Shimei, who limited to a handful of legitimate reasons, Jesus reduces the grounds for divorce to one, adultery. And in reducing divorce to reasons for adultery only, he remains consistent with the picture of spiritual marriage displayed by God in his dealings with Judah and Israel. Divorce for any other reason, with one exception I'll get to in a moment. Divorce for any other reason is a sin, because man separates what God joins together. And it bears repeating, God put up with a lot from Israel and Judah, but he could not put up with their unfaithfulness indefinitely. This pattern is again echoed in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. Paul says to the married that he commanded, but not him, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Paul urges Christian divorcees to seek reconciliation with their first spouse. And his exhortation follows the pattern God set in the Old Testament. But God's realistic. He understands that reconciliation may not be possible. And so for those divorced for reasons of adultery, he gives them permission to remarry. The point, however, is reconciliation should be the objective when at all possible. The emotional and spiritual toll of divorce is far too costly. Now I mentioned one exception earlier. It's the exception we found made in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 15. Paul says, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. 
To me, the context of this verse makes it clear these folks were married when they became Christians. But their spouses did not convert. I base that upon, among other verses, verse 17. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. So I ordain in all the churches. Paul is essentially urging the same course of action taught by Peter in his epistle. Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands. That even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. Folks who become Christians, but their spouses do not, they were to remain married to their unbelieving spouse. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul describes such relationships as being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And it's important to bear in mind that 1 Corinthians 7 is answering a question or a series of questions that the Corinthian church has sent to Paul. So it's likely that some folks who found themselves in what I might call a mixed marriage, it's likely that some of them were wondering, should I remain married to my husband or wife who has not obeyed the gospel? Though technically these brethren were unequally yoked, because their marriage took place prior to conversion, in Paul's judgment they were to remain married, since they were to remain in the same calling in which they were called. But if, however, the unbeliever divorced the believing spouse, Paul places the divorced Christian under no obligation to be reconciled with his or her spouse. Now, whether or not the Christian who remained behind was free to remarry is not clear to me. That that may very well be, but I'm still not in a place where I can, in good conscience, endorse that course of action. So what does this have to do with the picture of Christ and the church, God and His people, of faithfulness versus unfaithfulness? Well, let's think about this for a moment. Why would Paul allow this exception? Jesus obviously allows an exception in the case of marital infidelity. But why does Paul add this exception? Well, if we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 through 18, I think we find the answer why. Why is the exception given? Because of these series of questions that Paul asks. What accord has Christ with Belial? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Once again, I see internal consistency. Why did God divorce Israel and Judah? Because they abandoned him in favor of pursuing idolatry. What is one of Paul's primary concerns in 2 Corinthians 6, 15-18? Well, he's concerned with Christians forming associations with anything or anyone connected with idolatry. So the departure of an unbelieving spouse disconnects the Christian 
from his or her association with lawlessness, darkness, idolatry, and the list goes on. So even though on the surface it seems like the exception Paul is making is not related to the exception Jesus is making, even though that appears to be the case, when you dig a little deeper and think a little bit more about it, it resolves itself quite satisfactorily. So just to give a quick recap, here we see this deep parallel between God and His people, Christ and His church. And reducing the grounds for divorce to adultery only. Jesus is deftly connecting his teaching to the example of God and how he acted with Israel and Judah. Paul urges divorced Christians to seek reconciliation with their first spouses, if at all possible. And his exhortation is based on the pattern, the the example God gives in the Old Testament. He wanted that relationship restored. But in allowing Christians who became Christians after they were married to release themselves from unbelieving spouses if those spouses divorced him, Paul was remaining consistent with the message communicated by God in his divorce from Israel and Judah. Don't be associated with things which are not associated with me. Be careful who you are in fellowship with. That message comes out loud and clear, at least to me. I've got one final thing I want to say. I think it's going to take me maybe 15 minutes. We'll see. But there's one more parallel I want to draw between Christ and His church and what we have in our relationship with Jesus, what we can take away from that metaphor. I'd like to talk for a few minutes about duty. The shallowness of our present day disturbs me deeply. Perhaps you have heard someone say, I live with my girlfriend because I love her. Why do I need a piece of paper to say that I love her? You know, this rationalization feigns nobility. It sure sounds nice. But it's another in a long line of vacuous and destructive mentalities that is crippling American society. If a piece of paper is no big deal, then why don't you just go get it? If a piece of paper is no big deal, then why go to college? You can learn a whole lot just watching YouTube videos and reading books. You can practically get a university education by paying just very little these days. But why do you need a piece of paper to show how much knowledge you have if a piece of paper means nothing? These are the infantile rationalizations of a culture that is allergic to responsibility, bereft of a sense of meaning, obsessed with the superficial, satisfied with signaling virtue rather than possessing it, and disconnected from the harsh realities of human existence. I love what Rick said Wednesday night, not because I love the subject, but because I have been there before. And I appreciate the elders asking him to talk about the aftermath of divorce. And one of the points that Rick hammered home the other night, he talked about the vows we make to one another. 
And he contrasted those vows with people's pursuit of happiness. Marriage in our day and age has become the pursuit of happiness. And it's interesting to think about what people mean when they say, I just want to be happy. I ran across this a few weeks ago and I thought it was a pretty good observation. If you decompose what people mean when they say they want to be happy, what it turns out people mean is they don't want to be miserable. They're way more concerned with avoiding suffering than they are with pursuing enthusiastic, positive emotion. The statement, I want to be happy, is not an accurate reflection of what it is that you want. I thought that was a pretty fair observation. Probably not accurate in every situation, but generally true. Some some married people are motivated to remain married more by their fear of loneliness than they are by their love for either God or for their spouse. They just don't want to be more miserable than they actually are. Divorce is generally prompted by some level of misery that at least one party perceives is unbearable. What the pursuit of happiness implies is, I just don't want to hurt. Which, as Rick pointed out the other night, is what makes divorce such a mystery. To avoid pain, people choose to take on more pain, thinking it will relieve their pain, only to discover new and potentially longer-lasting pain. It's a vicious, vicious circle. When marriage is stripped down to its essential elements, it is a covenant relationship consecrated by God and articulated by vows. In Numbers 30, verse number 2, Moses warns, If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Solomon warns, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. What is a vow? Well, it's, the artic- it's an articulation of a commitment. It's you saying, I'm going to do this. And as the law and Solomon warns, you'd better do it. What is marriage? It's a covenant relationship. But it's a covenant relationship that's articulated by these vows that we make to one another. And these vows are sacred. I have a few couples sitting in the audience that I've had the privilege of marrying or uh, leading through premarital counseling. And one of the things that I try to remember to warn all these couples in in the process leading up to the marriage ceremony is, if you're going to write your own vows, be very careful what you promise to do. Give it a lot of thought. Because you're making these promises before God and before the witnesses that are gathered together to celebrate this today. And it really pains me to go to a wedding where I hear one or both spouses make light of these vows. It really disturbs me a lot. What is a marriage if it's not what's contained in those vows? We're making a a commitment to someone else. But those marriage vows represent more than just a commitment. 
Think for a moment about the traditional Protestant wedding vows. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. According to God's holy ordinance, and thereto I pledge myself to you. That's just one example of the traditional Protestant vows. When you think about those vows, and you think about the world in which those vows were developed, that world was far different from the one we live in. Parents regularly buried their children. Strep throat could kill you. Farming accidents permanently disabled or killed. Dry summers led to starvation in winter. And divorce was not an option on the table for anyone. In a world with few comforts, was it the pursuit of happiness that held marriage intact? Was it romantic love that held marriage intact? Was it just the commitment that was made? No, in those vows I hear something else. I hear the concept of duty. Duty is when we are called to do what is right, regardless of what it costs us. Jesus talks about duty in a way in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25. Jesus laid down his life for the church. And then he tells us, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow after me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To take up the cross can mean many things. The sacrifice of Jesus was multifaceted. So the potential application of what it means to take up the cross, that potential application could touch on any number of areas. But for our purposes this morning... Let's think of the cross in this way. The cross represents the sacrificing of comfort, the sacrifice of convenience, the sacrifice of even human happiness in order to carry out the will of God. And it is unfortunate, but some marriages become a cross to be born. Duty has been stripped of its nobility by a narcissistic culture that prizes comfort and convenience and happiness. But duty is in this idea of taking up the cross, of bearing a burden, of carrying out the will of God even at the sacrifice of oneself. Our culture says, do the easiest thing, go the easiest way, make things as easy as possible on yourself. It's been stripped of its nobility. Duty has been neutered by an evangelical media complex, which traffics in fairy tales divorced from the grit and the grime, the tears and the heartache that too many spouses live in on a daily basis. Brethren, there is nothing wrong with living in your marriage for a time or perhaps for its duration 
out of a sense of duty. At the risk of overstating my case, let me say this. I can think of few few things more admirable, more noble, and dare I say more Christ-like than for a Christian spouse in a dysfunctional marriage, staring darkness in the eye, and with faith and conviction saying to him or herself, I have made vows before God and man. I will keep those vows and honor my Lord and honor my spouse, come what may. This is the very epitome of denying oneself, taking up the cross, and following after Jesus Christ. Such marriages can be painful to watch from the outside. And rightly so. Watching a crucifixion was a horrific event. It was ugly, it was horrific, it was humiliating. But those who are suffering in such circumstances... They should motivate our compassion. But what they need is our prayers, not our pity. They need the Holy Spirit, not another specious and shallow book from the shelves of the local Christian bookstore. They need the Spirit. They need the community of believers who are like Simon the Cyrenian who took up the cross for Jesus when he could carry it no longer. They don't need a bunch of Pharisees standing off to the side, sniping them in the back, second-guessing them. If those on the outside will encourage them and support them, those who continue on in their marriage out of a sense of duty will discover rich rewards. Jesus suffered on the cross, and in doing so, He discovered great joy. For the joy that was set before him. And those who continue in marriage out of a sense of duty can know that same joy. They will discover the peace that passes all understanding. A peace that comes from the Holy Spirit. And a peace that results from knowing that you did the right thing for the right reasons. And they will learn a different dimension of sacrificial love that some of the rest of us will never know. And what emerges out of all of this is a beauty that can only be known and can only be produced through suffering. It's duty, not the pursuit of happiness, that holds marriages together. There are times in marriages where each spouse must think of their sense of duty to the other and to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not all carnivals and rockets. It's not the romantic comedy, although those seem to be falling farther and farther behind these days. It's not the magical show that we see from Hollywood. Life is tough. It's difficult. And the horrors we have to face with our mate together sometimes can drive us to our knees. And there are moments sometimes that last decades where one mate must continue on out of a sense of duty. Let's be there for them, brothers and sisters, because they're denying themselves, taking up their cross, and following after the Lord Jesus Christ.
Well, maybe for the first time this week, I was able to predict how long my notes would take. So, nothing like Friday. At the uh, beginning of my presentation, back in the first hour, I uh, gave you an assignment. I asked for everyone to think about uh, parallels you see between Christ and the church and our marriage relationships. And you can draw out those parallels if you like. You can repeat things you heard from earlier in the week if you'd like to do that. You can just give us some insights of things that you have learned along the way. Do I have any brave soul that would like to get this ball rolling this morning? Anybody got something they want to start with? Yes, Thomas Kuhn, thank you for being the first one. Breaking the ice. I'll start with an easy, happy one, and we can ease into it. Thank you. I'm I'm sure everybody's relieved after that dark little journey. There, go right ahead. Going back to the parallels you were drawing when Christ says, I've gone and prepared a place, and if I prepared a place, I'm going to come back. And that that always made sense to me from a, if I'm going to go do the work, I don't want to do it for no reason. But now you take it in that context, and if like, if I had had to leave my fiance for twelve months to to prepare a place and come back, you better believe I'm coming back. And so that <laughs> that assurance yeah. that Christ is coming, and then we can tie that to our own sensations in a similar bit. It just even feeds that knowledge, that faith, that he is coming. Very well said. Very well said. Someone else mentioned that passage in between class, and they had never... There was, a, there was a, an unfamiliarity with the whole preparation process between the betrothal and the marriage ceremony, and that passage just all of a sudden made, made more sense to them because of how it mirrors that. So yeah, the parallel's definitely there. All right, we need another brave soul. Anybody else? I know, it's Friday. Your minds are just filled with all this information. Yeah, thanks, Dace. Go ahead, Alan. So our marriages can be a wonderful evangelistic tool. Yes. A picture of the gospel, showing others the love of Jesus. And the gospel can heal many wounds yeah so i guess my encouragement is to consider what your marriage looks like to others around you yes yeah i had a a young woman tell me she had been spending some time with a a couple in the church and she said i want what they have i want what they have so marriage is can be a powerful evangelistic tool and it can even be a, a, a powerful encouragement tool within the church itself. When our young people see godly marriages, they get to know people, they say, I want that too. And uh, that's a good thing. Okay, I saw Dace move, so Bill, go ahead. Okay, uh, I, I know some of you that have been teaching this week have mentioned the scripture, and I... I don't have it in my head, but I know it's in either First or Second Peter, and you'll be able to tell me where it talks about. And you uh, talked about it today 
about uh, women who had spouses uh, that were not Christians. Yeah. And you talked about bearing your cross. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think you you will find in the case of my parents, my uh, my mom was a Christian, yeah. and she faithfully took us to church and kept bearing her cross. And my dad became a Christian when I was like uh, a freshman in college. And I know my aunt did the same thing, my mom's sister. And her husband, you know, at the age of like 70-something, became a Christian. And uh, I kind of look at it this way, you know, you can't uh, emphasize that enough because there's probably... Uh, if it's happened to me and it's happened to uh, Dave, uh, it's probably happened to a lot more in this crowd. And so uh, I don't think you can emphasize enough that that is a really good thing to bear your cross and just keep being the good example and keep praying and uh, it'll happen in a lot of cases. Yes. Thank you very much for that. All right. Okay, we've got a hand over here. Rachel, I pulled my glasses down. Sorry. So from personal experience, and I can only speak from the woman's side of view, but there is a lot of pressure for young ladies to get married. Yes. Whether you know that's implicit or, or expressed. And I also would like to emphasize, I believe it's what Paul says about, you know, I wish that they would remain as I am, unmarried. Mm -hmm. There is so much for unmarried people to give because they don't have the responsibilities of a married couple, you know, first, you know, to their spouse as well as, you know, dividing the time basically between being a Christian and being a loving spouse. Um... I think there should be more emphasis in that this is not a stigma to not be married. Mm. This is a blessing for the Lord and a blessing for our congregations that they don't have to divide their time. Um, And I think that should be reiterated more often than it probably is. I can also say from personal experience that uh, there is nothing worse than a bad marriage and there is nothing better than a good marriage. And in my opinion, I would have rather remained single the rest of my life than ever be in a bad marriage. So please don't feel that pressure just to be married. Thank you for speaking from the heart. Appreciate that. And as you were... Well, here I am. I'm the guy who's thinking of how I'm going to respond while you're talking. So, yeah, good listening skills, right, Wade? But I couldn't help it. Your your comment brought to mind something that I talked about in my class on Wednesday. I I think this is why it's so crucial that our emphasis needs to be on on Christ-likeness across the board. That's what we're all aspiring to, and, and how we aspire to that it's going to be different whether we're single or married, but both can aspire to Christ-likeness. One is not a lesser category or a second-class citizen in the kingdom, so to speak. Christ-likeness can be achieved by anyone who walks by faith, who allows the Spirit to shape them and mold them into the image of Jesus Christ. So I... I think it's just essential for for young people to go through the process of figuring out who am I 
and, and what do I want? And, and getting that identity figured out before they ever take those first steps into this process of, of dating or courtship, whichever your family chooses to do, it's essential for them to figure out who they are. I mean, I've had experiences where uh, talking with uh, married people, and it's like they, they didn't know who they were when they got married. They had, they'd never gone through the exercise of figuring out who I am. And so they get married, and they're like almost having a sort of identity crisis in a way. So it seems to me like we need to get the, the, the cart back behind the horse and, uh, and figure out this important thing, who I am. I'm aspiring to be like Christ. And that's achievable regardless of whether or not we're married. So thank you for that. Okay, Joel. So one of the big things for me whenever I'm talking to my children about what they're going to be doing and looking for a spouse, it is an idea of teamwork. We find this not only as you've talked about the relationship between a husband and a wife, but also between us and Christ. With the relationship of working together to pull a heavy load. Yeah. Um, I would encourage everyone to take an opportunity to take a look at draft horses and during a, uh, a horse pull. That's something that Aubrey and I have seen. These horses get up there and they work as a team. They're synchronized, but they're able to pull loads that are three, four times their own weight because they are synchronized. They pull together. They push together. And we see that same relationship not only inside of a marriage. If everyone's pulling the correct direction, we can pull five times our own desires and needs and pull others along with us as we go forward in our own children but also inside of our relationship with christ and the church if we're hooked with christ if we're equally yoked with christ his yoke is easy and his burden is light but if we are in step with him and in team with him we are able to pull ourselves he will guide us to salvation he will pull us in the correct path yeah yeah, very good. And that reminds me of Roger Bollinger's comment the other day about, uh, well, and you, you quoted it, what Jesus says about that we're his yoke fellow, right? Another thing that popped in my mind was Paul calls himself God's fellow worker. You know, the apostles saw themselves as working alongside, so to speak, God and Jesus Christ. And that, that really is a picture of marriage, right? We're, we're companion workers working toward the same objective. Is that Doug Twadell comment? Um, I, I agree with your, uh, the way you're understanding the scriptures about the unbelieving spouse or the disobedient spouse. I, I completely agree with that. Um, but I would like it if you would uh, give your thoughts or address a little bit the idea of an, of an abusive relationship. And at what point does it become necessary for one spouse to maybe not divorce officially, legally, but pull themselves out of a situation uh, that could be dangerous to them or to the children involved. Yeah, thank you. And I think it's important before I get into this to define what exactly we mean by abusive because it's there's more to abuse than, than what we think of in terms of, of physical violence. Abuse is an attempt to control another person uh, using mechanisms like anger or physical violence or sometimes 
emotional tools like lying and manipulation and blame shifting in order to uh, in order for the the abuser to um, to force their victim to do what they want them to do and uh, victims of emotional and verbal abuse even though they don't have outward bruises are are still very real victims of the same uh, root issue, which is you have a, a partner who is attempting to control using these various levers at their disposal and for, to control this other person. I am very reluctant to tell a person who is living in an abusive relationship to just hang in there and take their lumps for Jesus. I can't do that in good conscience. can't do that. I personally never advocate for separation, but I do uh, tell people in such circumstances that separation is an option on the table and that they should not uh, ever dismiss that option. Uh, in the case of physical abuse, they need to get out as quickly as possible and make themselves and their children safe. It gets more complicated when you're dealing with a victim of emotional and or verbal abuse. Those things are a lot more cloudy. But I do think there is an appropriate time when a person is living in an abusive relationship to separate. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but if she does depart. Now, typically we interpret that depart, meaning divorce, but I think that that does give us some latitude for the concept of separation. So long as it's understood that the separation is, is put in place in order to reconcile the relationship. The perpetrator needs help. They need a lot of help and Sometimes the only way that help can be given is if what they are controlling is removed from the situation. So I, I think it is an unfortunate fact that there are victims of abuse, physical, verbal, and emotional, and yes, even in the church, and I cannot in good conscience tell them to stay in there and take their lumps for Jesus. Because the damaging effects are such that uh, we're, not only, we're not only placing a person, who, uh, an adult, who is suffering from this, we're also placing children in, uh, in the uh, crosshairs as well. So... Um, feel free to disagree with me on my judgment on that. Uh, it's a difficult topic. It's not something that I, I promote in any way whatsoever. But if harm is being done in the marriage relationship, then there are nuclear options available. So thank you for that question, Doug. Any other follow Yep, James, go ahead. Um, I just wanted to say that I think um, as outsiders, if you see a relationship that's in trouble, um, it's very important for us to remember that both souls or all the souls involved are much more valuable than someone's happiness. And so 
the best thing that we can do is pray for reconciliation and yeah. pray that their relationship will be right with God. In the, they have to have that relationship right before they can have their physical, earthly relationship right. Yes, I agree. And the other thing we shouldn't do is assume that we really know what's going on. Jesus says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. You have no idea what's going on in some of these homes. You have no clue. And if you see a marriage in trouble, do not begin to speculate or play armchair psychologist as to what might be taking place. You just have no idea the pain and the suffering that are happening behind closed doors. So don't for a moment assume, based on scanty information, that you've got this figured out. You're not in the know. And the only one who really is in the know is the Lord Jesus Christ, because He not only sees everything that transpires, He also knows the secrets of the hearts of the people who are involved. So butt out. Pray for them. Encourage them. Support them as you can. But don't insert yourself into a situation and think that you've got the answers. A lot of times, we can enter into a situation like this believing that we are doing things for noble reasons and noble causes. And in reality, we're just acting selfishly because we want to be the person who rides into the rescue. We've got delusions of grandeur. So as Paul says in Galatians 6.1, if a man is overtaken in a trespass... You who, are a spiritual, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Take the log out of your eye, make sure you've got your house in order before you venture into these situations. So, I just, James, I took your comment and I ran with it a little bit, but I, I could not agree more. These folks need our prayer, they need our support, they need our encouragement, but also be very careful what conclusions you arrive at. You only know what you know. And don't start playing guessing games in these situations. Dace, go ahead. There is a phrase in the 1 Corinthians 7 passage mm-hmm. uh, at the end of verse 15. Yes that we read, but we don't often comment on. Yeah. And it's the phrase, but God has called us to peace. Yes. And here Paul tells us why this would be allowed. Yeah. And in Jesus doesn't even say why divorce from adultery would be why it would be allowed. Yeah. He implies that it is allowed, but he doesn't say why. Now, some people may say, well, that would be obvious why it's allowed. Well, I think Paul gives us the answer in this case because we are called to peace. And a marriage that is the exact opposite of that can be destructive to our spirituality as well as to the marriage itself, of course. Yes. And 
this may not be the time to comment on that. So that's one thought I have, and if you want to comment on that. But let, let me say something else here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, in the same passage, it talks about the sister is not, brother or sister is not under bondage yes. in such cases. Mm -hmm. And I think of in the book of Romans where when one of the spouses dies that the, they're no longer under bondage. Now they are different Greek words. I, I looked that up. Yeah. Uh, but we get the same English word there and sort of the same meaning. Mm -hmm. um, did you want to comment on that or that one is more of a technicality I think. Yeah, yeah. I'll comment on the second than the first. And uh, I, I think that no longer being in bondage can mean one of two things. Either they are then free to remarry, or they are no longer uh, responsible for reconciling that relationship. And they may be one and the same. I just, I can't in good conscience take that next step where I tell someone they're free to remarry. That, that may very well be the case. What I would typically, well, I should say what I would hypothetically recommend in this situation should it come up, uh, I would recommend that... Uh, the brother or sister in question, just think very carefully about what their options are. And I'm not going to second guess them. If they choose to remarry, even though I, I can't in good conscience endorse that action, I, I think the Lord Jesus Christ will have to sort this out. If this is the determination that they arrive at, I just can't, I can't quite take that next step. And I've been wrestling with this for a while now. That kind of sounds like something I said back in 2014, I imagine. So uh, I'm, I'm still quite, I'm not quite there. Um, but as to your first comment, I'll just say amen. And I especially want to just uh, highlight the potential for spiritual destruction in, in such situations. Kind of back to Doug's question, folks in abusive situations can begin to question even God himself. Does God even love me? Why did God allow this to happen to me? And you would expect that to be the sorts of questions that would come as a result. So, God has called us to peace. Thank you for that comment. All right. I don't know where we're at here. Okay. And, and I saw Michelle back there with a the hand raised earlier. I don't know if you... Yep, she still got it. Go ahead, Lynette. As someone has been, that has been through this process, um, sometimes, and it may be just a connotation that I feel, okay, you're divorced, you're shunned, uh, and maybe that's just my emotional gar baggage. Mm. But... I don't think that we, I know we don't do enough to help the people that have had to go through this process through no fault of their own. Um, people feel like they don't have anybody to talk to because oh, you're divorced, yeah. you failed. I don't want to talk to you. And, and that may be totally my perception. Uh, so please, nobody take a personal no. approach. But no. I think we as a church need to look at that and see how can we help them. If, it's, if they didn't bring on the divorce, if they didn't uh, instigate it, 
you're out of control of that issue sometimes, especially with the, most states now are a no-fault divorce. Yeah. And um, sometimes I think we don't realize how they feel alone, how, feel, how they feel like nobody cares. So prayers, even just saying I'm sorry to them, helps tremendously. But being also being somebody that's been through it, you have to remember that God is the only thing that does not change, and you have to hang on to that, and you can make it. It's not easy, but you can make it one minute at a time sometimes. My mom sat as a divorced woman for 14 years in the Assembly of the Saints, and she felt just as lonely. She felt like she was a second-class citizen, and... If it were not for the friendships of a few people who are present, I'm not going to name them because I don't want to embarrass them, and some that have gone on to their reward, I don't know what she would have done. And every time that divorce got brought up, it was like reliving the nightmare all over again. But one of the things I admired about my mom is she just hung in there. She knew that the church needed to talk about divorce, even though it hurt her. Every time she had to hear about it, she knew the church needed to be taught because she did not want someone else to go through the living nightmare that she went through. So if we can spare one person from having to go through that, let's make sure we talk about it. And let's not forget these sisters and brothers who have, have walked the gauntlet They're living the aftermath that Rick described the other night. So thank you for your comments, Lynette. Michelle, it's 11.31. You get the last comment for the week. It's all yours. Okay. Um, First of all, um, I myself at one time was in an abusive relationship. And nobody really knew they thought about it and they thought you know well she's not she doesn't have any bruises or anything but emotionally and spiritually i was being drained and i wasn't i wasn't married so i understand that sometimes you know of our own fault these things happen but nobody knew what was really going on And then um, one time he decided to go ahead and physically abuse me because he said, well, you know what? Everybody thinks I'm abusing you anyway, so might as well do it physically too. And um, it took me a long time to heal from that. Um, But the second comment is much more joyous. Um, What I wanted to say is, is that I may not be married yet, but the Lord knows the desires of my heart. And He knows that I want to be married, and He knows that I want children someday. But I've also come to realize that um, I rather have a godly marriage than just to be married and um, it's taken me a long time to be okay by myself and 
I've realized that those desires of my heart possibly could change to fulfill the desires of God's heart and for me to be, you know, a witness and help with others who struggle with different things. So I've gotten to the point where whatever your will is, Father, is the desire of my heart. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you for that. And I'll just say one thing in response. Let's be sure we tell our kids not just to marry in the church, but to marry the right person in the church. There are lots of bodies sitting in pews who may claim to be believers in Jesus Christ, but they're not living the way that they should. I talked with a woman one time who had married a man in the church because that's what she had been told to do, only to learn later that the man had an addiction to gambling. And he had made her life an absolute nightmare. She says to me, I was told to marry in the church and I did, and this is what I got. So as these high school and college kids are coming back up, I'll just repeat what I said to them yesterday. Find a mate who loves the Lord with all their hearts, with all their soul, with all their strength, and with all their might. It's been good being with you all this week. Thank you for the opportunity to teach. I'll turn it over to whoever's got the invitation.